Hello, this is Matt Marone, the worship pastor here at Glenelg Bible Church. You're listening to the Next Level Podcast. Today, we're going to answer listener questions from Sunday, April 30th, 2023. Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, the Growth and Groups Pastor at Glenelg Bible Church. Hi, I am Simone Helpin, Executive Director of Naomi's House. And I'm Kelly Brady, Senior Pastor at Glenelg Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to the Next Level. Good morning. Hello. May 1st. We made it. Yes. We got through the worst month. I'm going to make my way over here. Okay. The Midwest. Just keep talking. I feel All like, right. I <laughs> feel like um, I've always survived something when I come through a winter totally. here in the Midwest. And even May. May's okay. the worst. I took the most gorgeous picture yeah, on my way April, to church. April. Oh, I yeah? Yeah. Closer? All the rain, right? It's going to rain this week. Yeah. Um, For a farmer a, like you, that's I, exciting. I know. I got to get out in the fields. I planted a couple of weeks ago, so I've I've got stuff coming up, and um, I need to do a second round of plantings. Are you trying anything new? A new crop? This well, year? my asparagus came in, so asparagus takes three years to basically produce. Oh, and that's a real test for me. I almost dug them out last year and said, "Enough of this!" It's because yeah. it's taking up space and it's worthless. But they came in, and we've actually had. Uh, Two meals with homegrown asparagus in nice. it already. That's it's a, it's an early spring crop. That's so great. It's fun. I love asparagus. Yeah. yeah. I bunny proofed our two. So we have, I think we have what, four boxes? We yeah. have four raised and then we have two in the ground. I bunny proofed those this weekend. Is that just uh, a fence with some mesh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Six foot fence? Uh, not quite. I apologize to everyone listening that I brought up crops again. <laughs> Farming. Oh, man. Hey, it's awesome. It is fun. Hey, uh, Grant, uh, how did you feel about PCC yesterday in your sermon? And It's always fun to be over at PCC. Um, yeah, I really enjoy the people. It's fun, the conversations kind of before and after the, the service, getting to chat with folks. Um, yeah, sermon, I'll be honest, this was probably one of the harder ones I've not even one of. This was for sure the hardest sermon that I've ever uh, prepped. attempted, prepped, preached. Yeah. yeah. So it was challenging. That's why I raise it, because I know we both labored over it. Yeah. 12 chapters of God's judgment against the nations of the ancient Near East. Is, yeah. It was hard. It was. It was. I spent a lot of time uh, reading about, thinking about during the week, and trying to get, get my arms around. Best I could Sunday. Uh, grateful that the church in general is patient with us as we're learning to preach. And so it felt kind of like more of a learning chance for me. Um, but hopefully there was some good that came out of it for other people. I know I actually learned quite a bit. What so. was that like for you guys? It was fa- it personally, is personally with God, like what okay, to spend that God. much time in judgment, mm-hmm. you know, what, it's so what came of it? Yeah. For you? it for sure. Sobering. Uh, I had a conversation with a gentleman afterwards and, he mentioned something to me, and I actually wish I would have made this more clear in my sermon. Um, he said, you know, I disagree with you about one point, and he said, I, I think judgment is actually a point of comfort. He said, I, I've, I'm in a season of being judged by God, and I find it very comforting. And, um, wow, what I, that's awesome. Yeah, what I tried <laughs> to tell you, him... Thank you, sir, may I have another? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. What I tried to tell him is uh, that actually was um, at least intellectually... The conclusion I personally came to after a week of studying all of this is because I have confidence in God's goodness and character, because he is looking to free me from captivity, uh, his judgment is actually care. It's kind of, I, I imagine a little bit the way Kelly talks about elders being this kind of shield and finding a lot of protection um, from working with the elders as they uh, kind of oversee him. And I thought something similar is I, 
I hope that I get to a point where I trust and know and love God enough where his judgment is one of comfort and not something that I fear or have arrogance and say like, oh, I don't need that. So it's a good word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I told Grant this morning, it, 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 I mean, if, if you want to study in, in preaching, go watch both sermons or listen to both sermons because I, I told Grant this morning, I think he served the text better than I did. And I think I served the listener better than he did. Yeah. And so, and, and every, and that's where the preachers often caught. Mm. Um, the, it's not that I mishandled the text in the least, um, but you actually took the assignment of the 12 chapters and dug into it in a way I did not. Um, it's really, really Which fascinating. Which my guess would be, you know, there's many different minds sitting in a congregation listening and taking in what you're saying. So, exactly. you know, you can't who, be perfect, Who knows what, guys. well, well <laughs> and, and th- no, it, it, we won't be perfect, and, but even on our best days, um, I, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit's got to be at work. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. And we all know that. The, the, yeah. the Spirit's mm-hmm. got to make application. The Spirit's got to open minds and hearts. Jonathan Edwards, I'll never forget this, and I brought this up before, Jonathan Edwards, during the Great Awakening, so arguably the most effectual revival in American history, um, frankly changing the course of our nation in many respects. Um, He would be preaching, and he scripted his sermons, and then he read them. And he'd be reading them, and people would, so impacted by the Spirit, would get up out of their seats and come forward in a posture of confession and repentance, and they'd be weeping and wailing. Mm. And he would shush them. Shh, I'm not done with my sermon. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, my, the Spirit's got to work, and thankfully the Spirit does work. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's the, the takeaway. Anytime you get up to preach, I think there's this, uh, it, it gives you this sense of humility in the, you, know, you can do all your, all your work, your best effort, and you get done and, I don't know if you're like me, you're like, oh man, I don't know if I should ever get up there again. Um, <laughs> but then kind of realizing it was never up to me to begin with, mm-hmm. right? Like it was, and I can say very clearly after yesterday, if anyone was moved by something like that, I'm like, oh, that was God working. I put in my effort and it often feels like, you know, the couple fish and loaves of bread. I'm like, Jesus, mm-hmm. you got you to gotta do your thing with it if you're going to feed your people. Um, not that I'm lazy or try to escape the responsibility. Yeah, but we offer what we have, the yeah. fishes and the loaves we have. Yeah. And that's, that's where I would say, I, you know, I know you've reflected on your years of preaching at, at GBC and um, similarly would say I'm, I'm grateful that the church has been patient as I'm learning to do that because my uh, fish and loaves are not always great, um, but I, I hope one day to, to grow in that. And The text won't get any more difficult than Give what, us, we, what we do. Serve us some elk, bro. I know, I know. Serve us some elk. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Working on it. Take that. <laughs> yeah, oh, Grant is a big elk hunter. Oh, okay, yes. that makes more sense. He's an yes. elk. Mm-hmm. You're an elk stalker. Yeah, yeah. currently I'm just stalking them. Um, like when I go uh, fishing, I'm a caster. I'm not really a catcher. Yeah. I'm not very good. Yeah. It'll, mm-hmm. it'll happen at some point. I told Laura last night I'm going to go again in the fall elk hunting and... Uh, I said, elk hunting gives me purpose. And she kind of like rolls her eyes and um, <laughs> whatever. But yeah. Where do you, where, I'm sorry. Where do you go elk it's, hunting? It's, it's fascinating. Carol Stream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Elk Grove Village, they have a, a fence there. And it's, you know, um, so you, 
all out west people can go. I personally uh, am a big fan of Idaho. Okay. So I've, okay. I've, so it is not in Illinois. But like that was really that was you're out for days, right? At yeah. a time. Yeah. Not not coming yeah. in and going to the hotel and then going back. No, out. no, no. I put like camp he's on my out back on the mountain. Okay. Carries it out with for him. days at a time. Yes. Yes. I'll go to out try there to for, by yourself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That sounds safe. <laughs> Yeah, hunting uh, animals thanks, that could <laughs> they could end you. I, yes, right I, for sure. They, they could. could. It's not that would not yeah. be a, a common thing. Granted, but, you have um, a gun, which is going no, to I seg don't. us into it's a bow or a bow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is going to seg us into the first question today. That's nice good. move. Yeah, yeah. Good. all right, you good go because I have the same question. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Um, but hey, if you if you know who Grant is, uh, you should talk to him about the elk hunting. It's fascinating. I find he's it fascinating. Man, he's the man with the bun. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, first question. There's great questions today. First question. Here we go. Uh, I'm a college student, and in my ethics class this semester, we had a huge debate about pacifism. I wish I had known about the name Yahweh Sabaoth during that debate. What, if any, implications does the name God of Heaven's Armies have on a theory of pacifism? It's a great question. Yeah. Great question. Simone, you said you actually had something like this, right? A question? Yeah. Anthony and I just talked about... Um, did, you, did you come up with any answers? The implications of war. Um, no. I mean, just the context of the time of mm. when Isaiah is prophesizing versus today and how different cultures... Yeah. And Israel was. I mean, there's, yeah. there's no yeah. theocracy. Right. God-ordained government. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was probably one of our biggest takeaways. How, how do you apply some of the truths that that we learn from Isaiah to a day mm. like today when our cultures are so different? No. I think some would argue, and I, I'm curious if this college student would say that war is no is not as needed. I just, I'm just wondering if that's true. Well, can we lay a little groundwork first? Sure. Um, so <laughs> I'm imagining this person uh, had a debate about pacifism and possibly just war theory. Mm -hmm. um, can we lay it? And I've, uh, where, first of all, where do we all land on that, right? So there are Christians who are pacifists and think, uh, believe that Jesus taught pacifism. Mm -hmm. There are Christians who are on the other side of the spectrum with just war, mm -hmm. um, uh, saying that, no, that's okay to go to war. Um, where do you guys land, number one? And number two, Kelly, can you just kind of give us a little background on that and explanation for our listeners? I can try. Yep. Yeah. I'm not a pacifist. Um, and, and the categories that I would set up would, when we talk about um, how to respond to violence, when we talk about that we need to distinguish between a civil, mm -hmm. a civic, the civic responsibilities of violence within our community, and then the personal. Is this, are we talking about a civil, a civil ethic or a personal ethic? Is this a, a, a debate about governance and how we govern or about how I lead my life as an individual? So those are two distinct categories that need to be drawn. Uh, Romans 13 is pretty clear that God um, ordains government in order to restrain evil. So you could read the, the opening to Romans 13 and, um, and it's, he just talks about how the sword is given to those who are governing in order to restrain evil. And so there is a necessary restraint of evil at a civic level. Uh, policemen serve a real purpose. I think we all know that. Um, but then there's a, the debate about a personal ethic. If someone punches me, do I offer them my other cheek? Mm 
Um, and so the context of Jesus' teaching eye for eye, which I actually brought up in second service, um, I believe is a personal, it's at the level of a personal ethic as a follower of the person of Jesus, emulating him, who incidentally went to the cross without um, striking out against those who were arresting him and beating him. And um, so the context of his teachings in Matthew 5 is that there's no longer eye for eye. It's a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he is talking about the historic, you've heard it said, and he goes through various points of the law, but I say to you, and so he's saying, you've heard it said eye for eye, but I tell you, turn the other cheek. And so the context is to love our enemies, not to hate them and not to seek vengeance. So that's the context. So I think for me that can be carried beyond what Christ intended. I think there was rhetorical strategy in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says it's no longer tick for tack, eye for eye. Now we're ruled by an ethic of love. I totally get that. I embrace that. But it's not loving to let a man enter my house and and hurt my family. It's not loving to my family, and it's not loving to the the perpetrator. And so with the ethic of turn the other cheek, it needs, it, it, it works in tandem with, not in competition with the notion of discipline, which is woven throughout the new Testament. We're, we're to cheer each other on to love and good deeds. And so if someone is acting mean, I'm not going to act. I'm not going to let his being a mean person is not in the best interest of the mean person. So I'm going to act to discipline that person. Um, and, in other words, I'm, I'm going to uh, resist evil. I, I think of the, the Dutch resistance against Nazi invasion and how they cared for Jews during World War II. They actively resisted evil as the Nazis rolled in and tried to round up all the Jews and ship them off to death camps. So there needs to be an active resistance, both at a personal and a civic level to evil. So that's what I would say. Yeah, I, uh, I was telling Kelly and Simone before the podcast, this is seemingly a common conversation in college, um, which is valuable, right? We've got to like wrestle through all of these types of ideas. And I remember hearing a compelling argument in um, when I was in undergrad. Um, but as I've continued studying, and you know, often family really is the thing that would keep us from maybe adopting that full pacifist uh, position right, and at least pragmatically, day-to-day um, -day stuff. Um, where I would land is at least on this idea that um, pacifism one day will, it's the ideal, right, that there will not be war. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I think it demands from us is a creativity in our response to evil, right? So a, a physical uh, punching somebody back might be reasonable, but I'm not sure it's the best way to respond. And I think it's kind of, it's the easiest response. So uh, even uh, when I think about disciplining my children, um, you know, wherever you land on spanking or whatever, um, I, I think that's reasonable. I would never say that's a, a sin. 
categorically. Um, but I also think it's the easiest response, right? There might be a, a better way, a more creative way for us to respond to uh, evil or violence or those types of things. And so at least for me, it draws me closer to, is there an alternative to war? War might be the only option. Violence might be um, the option, but I want it to be a last resort. And oftentimes, at least in my human instinct, uh, it's easy for it to be a first resort. So, yep. um, yeah, that's kind of a non-answer answer, but that's how mm -hmm. I approach it. Well, the last part of this question was, you know, it sounds like the question asker wishes they would have known of this mm -hmm. name of, of mm -hmm. God in that conversation. Is it possible that uh, Yahweh Sabaoth, God of Heaven's Armies, could be used in um, a debate about I, just war versus pacifism? Yeah, absolutely. For me, absolutely. So the judgment that someone's misbehaving and the seeking of justice takes force. It takes verbal force. It takes physical force in, in some instances. And so th there are parameters to just war theory, like a proportional response. Grant's talking about a proportional response, and he's also talking about a most effective response. So in in, in, I absolutely think that the character of God comes to bear to some degree on our desire for justice and our judging each other's behaviors and disciplining each other. Spoon where June Anthony land on this? <laughs> we didn't. <laughs> oh, I don't know that I have much more to add. I mean, it's it feels complicated. I I think what you all are touching on is um, I'm 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 sitting here learning. I'm thinking, and I don't know. <clears throat> I'm wondering if the question has been answered to the like satisfaction of what she or he was looking for. Yeah, you know my. Um um, the guy who really mentored me was a pacifist and he, he studied at Duke Divinity under a guy named Stanley Hauerwas, mm. who is, he's one of the leading, you know, pacifist, uh, uh, debater argument guys, whatever. I've, I've listened to several of his, um, and, and I don't land in that camp, but I've listened to several of his arguments and honestly, a lot of them were convincing. Um, uh, the main question is, it, a lot of times it would steer away from the, what if someone broke into your house, which is very interesting because uh, my mentor, he, he lived in a rough part of Chicago. Mm -hmm. Somebody literally did break into his house while his wife and, and kid was at home. As he was coming home, he was pulling into the driveway and saw the guy running, running off and mm. he, he chased after him. He didn't catch him, but I was just like, well, what would you have done yeah. <laughs> had you caught him? Like, you, you know, stern talking. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't <laughs> right. do that again, please. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, the question that they would often talk about, uh, cause he would go around and around with a lot of the other pastors there, um, was if, if a Christian should, um, participate in war mm -hmm. as if, if that's okay. Um, and so I, I would just listen to, you know, I, I didn't find their arguments super compelling. I don't know that I could detail and lay them all out. Um, it's interesting. Jesus had dialogue with s several centurions and never once told them, hey, you need to lay down your sword. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, which and actually said quite the opposite. <laughs> like talking about. Right. He, he actually says, do a good job and don't extort money right. with your power. Right. I, I guess not the opposite, but he had good things to speak. Right. Of. There's a place and a role. Right. At this point. Yeah. I, 
I find I find that point compelling. Yeah. I do. Here's a question that we also talked about, which I also don't have an answer to. So I'll just talk to talk. Um, you said in your message that God is still looking for warriors, warriors. Okay. and that's what Maddie heard, my 16 year old, when I asked her because she was kind of in and out of the conversation. What did you hear today? And she was like, well, I just heard he said God still needs warriors. So I, where does that fit in? And yeah, it fits in question number two. It fits into question number two. Great. Hey, I just yeah. looked Great. up just war theory. Let me outline yeah. it really quick. Just mm-hmm. war theory means to respond. Um, it, uh, war must be the last response of a nation. It's your last ditch effort. It should be a proportional response. It should, you should have a likelihood of success. And by that, it means you shouldn't just march your citizenry off to death. There should yeah. be a likelihood of winning and you should do no evil in war, which is an interesting debate, because many of us would think war in itself is evil, but there are atrocities that can be committed in yes. war that you should not have any a part of. So it was interesting to quickly Google the parameters of just war theory and yeah. thought I'd offer them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so the next one, uh, what does it look like to fight the good fight in the 21st century? Frankly, I understand David's battle with Goliath better than the battle we are to fight as followers of Jesus. Help. I think that's true. I think that we get at kind of an intuitive level what David was trying to accomplish when he marched out and faced down Goliath. It was, it's, it's got this very physical element to it, and we get that. The spiritual nature, and I'm, I want to be careful not to draw a hard distinction between spiritual and physical uh, because they're, um, uh, they overlap, but the spiritual nature of fighting the good fight it, can be lost on us. And so when I, when I say in second service that God makes war, Yahweh Sabaoth, on any that undermine his glory, diminishes or frustrate his purposes in the world uh, through sinful behavior, God's making war and he's looking for warriors. Um, I, I think that we need to work hard at defining what it means to fight the good fight. I am so often frustrated by the notion that when we invite people to serve that... Uh, that some in the congregation or that some believers might think, you know, the highest and best use of their gifts are passing out bulletins on Sunday morning, which we need done. We need that done. But there, there is a battle to be fought that is, um, that's more subtle uh, and, and to some degree every bit as physical um, as the David and Goliath battle. Uh, Simone, I'll put you and Anthony in the hot spot. The work that Anthony has done uh, for World Vision, mm. is stunning. It's intensely physical, and he champions the cause mm-hmm. of and care of children mm-hmm. uh, through his fundraising efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably won't be appreciate being out of that way, unless, of course, there are listeners that want to give money to the cause. <laughs> <laughs> but just, you know, he's run marathons in order to, and he, does, he mm-hmm. says, I don't even like running marathons, mm-hmm. but he does it to champion that cause. That's a great example. Because I, I, I was I, worried by the look on your face like, oh, no, darn No, 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 light bulbs are going off. I'm more, I, I guess I just wonder how many people heard, because I think I would fall into this category, category of God is still looking for warriors as being super defensive. And uh, it's the type of Christian that I bristle against sometimes that oh. are just... Just okay. negative and... Well, let's redefine it. Are you talking Tell about, us about like cultural warriors? Like yeah, they're just exactly. anti-everything? Yes, anti-everything. Yes. And, and they feel threatened all the time and they got to fight for their faith and all of our freedoms are probably taken away and I'm <laughs> maybe getting a little too specific. Well, but, tell us uh, about Anthony's good fight. Well, you just did a great job. Okay. Yeah, no, he's motivated to end the clean water crisis. And, and, and he's raised 
A million oh, bucks? God, a lot know. of money. Lots and lots. And he's he's traveled around the globe. Yeah. And he invites people mm-hmm. to be a part of it. Yeah. So it's not just a solo thing he does, mm-hmm. but he's actually invited people to be a part of it. Yeah. I found it the night that he was describing it, it uh, inspiring. That's great. I appreciate you uh, thinking of that's a good example. And the example he gave when we were talking about this after Maddie walked away is he said, we're fighting on her behalf right now. We're fighting for her faith by parenting her. All right, let's talk about how that happens because I think you're on to something there. I think there's something very subtle about what it means to champion the cause of Christ, Mm -hmm. uh, to fight the good fight Mm -hmm. that we often miss in Mm -hmm. suburbia. I think it's as simple as telling the truth. So the armor of God, that's in my script here, or the notes I wrote down. Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 18, outlines this armor of God. I mean, Paul chooses a very battle-centric metaphor to describe what it means yeah. to follow Christ. And so there is a fight. He, the first element of the armor is the belt of truth. And, he's, and for me, that, that, means, that means telling the truth is a core element of my character. I don't lie. I don't shade the truth. Uh, what you see is what you get. That battle is difficult. Yeah. And it's not an external battle as much as it is an internal battle uh, where it's very culturally common to, to avoid truth-telling activities. I had someone call me last week and want a little conflict resolution meeting. So I said, absolutely, I'll sit with you and... And, and this person said to me, I'm, I'm doing my best to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. I said, great. I hope I'm someone with whom you can have a difficult conversation. That we, in other words, that we can tell each other the truth. Mm-hmm. He was another faith leader in the area. And so we worked through some issues together there. Um, Wait, so he wanted conflict resolution with you? Yes. <laughs> That's not how I first heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And so he had come to me that. saying, I want to tell you how frustrated you made me. I That's said, great. Amazing. I said, great. Yeah. You welcome that. You don't mind that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, this truth telling thing, fight the good fight. I actually, not to say I'm like a hero in this, like maybe the example's bad, but yesterday, uh, preaching about judgment, I actually, there is a part of me that didn't want to say that truth. Right. Mm. And, and that was the temptation of, uh, do I soften what scripture says or how it represents God? Um, do I massage this to make it sound as if it's a little bit more palatable, acceptable, um, so I think there's some, some of that as we represent God to our community. Are we being honest about what Christ actually calls us to? Um, I, and the other one I think, and this one is maybe harder, more convicting for me, is um, do I benefit because of someone else's uh, power abuse? Right? Like I, I don't think I abuse power. I work really hard not to. Um, but are there areas, things that I participate in, where there is an abuse of power and it actually is profiting me in, in some fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a big part of fighting the good fight is uh, standing up to that. That's a, you know, an exercise of evil to abuse power. and Not passively participating right. and benefiting from other people's. Right, or just being content with, yeah. like, yeah. oh, I know that's happening. That's good. That's, but, yeah, that's a great example. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that, I mean, that's certainly a much more challenging the one The fair for me. trade that's been so popularized over the last 20 years is a part of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. The second, and you should, the listeners should go read the armor of God later on and, and make this, but I want to, the breastplate of righteousness is the second piece of armor mentioned. And the breastplate, if you heard a sermon on this, they're going to tell you, well, it covers the primary organs mm-hmm. uh, in the Roman soldiers. Um, 
battle gear and so it's it's worn over the heart the stomach you know the the liver the, these organs that if they take a blow then you're certain to to die it's going to be a, a casual you'll be a casualty so the breastplate in we want over our vital organs the righteousness of christ which is to say we want to be our identity firmly fixed in christ and so i'll, I'll pick a, a cultural hot topic um, to talk about how it's important that our identity is rooted in Christ. The, the LGBTQ community um, often talks about their identities being primarily found in their sexuality and how they, um, how they experience their sexuality and express their sexuality. I think it'd be important for the believing community who struggles with LGBTQ um, desires to find their identity in Christ, not primarily in their sexuality. Does that make sense? Am I doing okay mm -hmm. uh, the way I'm expressing this? So the culture in which we live pressures us to find our identity um, in our earnings, our sexuality, our experiences, our credentials, any a number of things, mm -hmm. both positive and negative. We need to find, we need to be covered in a vital way, the breastplate, with the righteousness of Christ, our identity firmly fixed in him. So and in fighting the good fight is to remind myself, <laughs> not simply to tell the world, because as you pointed out, Simone, there are a lot of culture warriors out there mm -hmm. who are using the Bible to beat the tar out of people. And there's a place to tell the truth, mm -hmm. the belt of truth, about the essential nature of finding our identity in Christ. But it's, it's first and foremost something that I have to be rooted in as I go to tell others that, that their identity in Christ is, is the immovable identity when our sexuality, you know, frankly, at, at 54, you know, there, there's a lot of change in who we are and, and growth needed. Uh, so. it's good. Feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, right? Just the courage to give a ver verbal witness for Christ. How many of us are dodging opportunities to talk about Jesus publicly or editing our conversation, depending on who we're hanging out around? Yeah. This, uh, this made me think of, uh, I was just reading 1 Corinthians the other day, and it made me think of this verse where, you know, Paul's talking about love. And the, the, two, the two statements he makes that we have to hold together are... Um, uh, that love, he's talking about love, it does not dishonor others, mm -hmm. but at the same time, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And so, and, you know, of course, it's how do you speak the truth in love? But to take it a step further, how do you speak the truth to somebody, but then not dishonor them? Mm -hmm. You know, what I mean? that's, that's kind of the, the tension that we hold, because, yeah, I mean, there are culture warriors who are on a far extreme, but then there's a lot of middle ground people who are like, wait a minute, our, my immediate neighborhood, my immediate community is growing darker. And I'm seeing, and evil, and evil builds upon evil, right? Like evil just doesn't come in most of the time like a big tsunami. <laughs> like evil's just More wave subtle. after yeah. wave after wave. And this happened 10 years ago. And then five years ago, this happened. But five years ago, that couldn't have happened unless X, Y, Z happened 10 years ago. And so there are people who are looking at it going, wait a minute, this, this isn't good. Yeah. We, we are making this soil in our community uh, unfertile yeah. and bad. And so... Um, 
but the, 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 the tension, the trick is, um, how not to dishonor somebody, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not about hurting their feelings, but how to dishonor them, uh, how not to dishonor them. But at the same time, you know, speaking the truth, not your truth, but the <laughs> truth. This, this whole conversation is super enlightening to me. I just have to say, because, um, if, so, you know, to build on what you're saying, Kelly, to be dressed with these different pieces of armor, um, to be in battle. I mean, I guess I, I have a hard time just really resonating with such a, like a war focused analogy, although it's obviously very biblical. It's just hard to translate that to my everyday. But as the more you're talking about it and you're, you're, you're unpacking each one of these, it makes so much sense. It's mm-hmm. super enlightening and it's really encouraging to think that this is the calling for every believer to be ready. And mm-hmm. what, whether it's you're in full-time ministry vocationally, that feels a little bit more familiar to you. Or if you're, you know, in corporate America or you're, um, you're a stay-at-home mom or you, there's different, you know, you wear different hats, you're, you're also still called to this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I'm slowly seeing more and more as you're talking this through is, Wow, we this is a this is a this is a calling, this is a charge to be ready for battle, and mm-hmm. it makes me want to follow back up with Maddie and talk about what this looks like as someone who's fully enthralled in culture these days, and mm-hmm. be able to have a conversation with this is what it looks like to be to be ready to be the warrior that you mentioned yesterday in service. Um, it's interesting. So uh, to piggyback on mm-hmm. how this is a very everyday ordinary, every Christian believers to wear the armor and to be active with the armor. Um, so the, he goes through some other pieces, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, right? A verbal witness for Christ, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, then sword of the spirit, which I didn't even write in the notes, uh, sword of the spirit. And then he says, which is the word of God. And so this ability to wield the word of God in ways that push back darkness in our community. And then, so the culmination, he goes through this list of all these elements of armor. And then the final thing he says is pray in the spirit on all occasions. I would argue that the fullest, not the only, but the fullest exercise of the armor of God is seen in prayer. Hmm. It's not the only place we exercise it. We exercise it in the marketplace, in one-one, one-to-a-few conversations, when we're talking with people, without a doubt. It's, but if we're not praying, we are not fighting. Mm. And the American church is not known historically as a prayer field church. The, the church of South Korea, they're known as a church that prays. Um, so we could, if you... I would say to the suburban listeners, if you want to fight the good fight, the place to start is learn to pray and begin to pray. Yeah, man. That's a good word. Um, It's Ephesians 6 if the listener, if you guys want to go read it later today. All right, let's go to the next one. Uh, This is on James 5.5. What are we to make of the warning to believers from James 5.5? What does it mean that we escape the wrath of God through faith in Jesus? If Yahweh Sabaoth might come after us according to James. All right, so tell us what James is saying. Yeah, James 5 was this this warning to people who were misusing their wealth. So James, I went out of my way to say James was written to believers. 
and there's this really stiff warning. There are actually three warnings in the book of James to rich, rich people misusing their money. So James 5, verses 1 to 5, uh, and I'm just going to read the, the kind of the culmination. Uh, the wages you have failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. They're testifying against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of Yahweh Sabaoth. So your unfair practices in the marketplace, when you are saying you'll pay X and don't pay it, or saying you'll pay and don't pay, when you're mistreating people as a wealthy person and taking advantage of people who have less, that's, that's reaching the ears of the Lord of Heaven's armies. And so he's warning, he says, you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've actually fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. So do I, what I'm hearing is someone's asking, should I be afraid that God's going to make war on me, even though I'm trusting in Christ? And the answer is no. Uh, the wrath of God was laid on Christ. If you're trusting in Christ, then you'll escape. However, there is a judgment for believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll read it here for us. Paul outlines that, that believers will face a judgment. Um, it's uh, chapter 3, 1 Corinthians, verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation, the foundation of Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day of judgment will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So the quality of each person's work is going to be tested. Some of us are building with gold on the foundation of Christ. Others are building with wood, hay, and straw. We know what wood, hay, and straw, how they experience fire. They're consumed while gold is refined. So he goes on to say, if what has been built on the foundation of Christ survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. So there's a judgment ahead for believers in which the, the same Yahweh Sabaoth, who, who comes against those who undermine his glory and his good work of redemption, right, non-believers, that same God will judge believers, will escape, uh, will be saved is what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 3, but we could suffer loss. If you're a wealthy person using your, your money in selfish ways, you're going to suffer loss in the judgment. We're to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, not treasure on earth. And so we each need, and this is a particularly uh, weighty concern for suburban America and for the American church, the wealthiest church in the history of the world. This is a weighty issue. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. It's not impossible. All things are possible with God. Um, but we need, to, we need to be honest with ourselves about the burden that wealth really is, mm -hmm. spiritually speaking. That's good. All right, let's go to the next one. Um, number four, I appreciated the bad news on Sunday. It does make the good news clear. Can you give some examples of how to communicate that in daily life? So Kelly talked a little bit about that, right? Yeah. The good news is so good. Because the bad news is so bad. Right, right. Uh, if, and if we don't tell people the bad news, they'll never see why the good news is good. They'll just think it's okay news. 
can you clarify what you said the bad news was on Sunday? Yeah, the bad news is that we're we're sinful. We're actually born sinners, and that condemns us. And that condemns us. We we're born biologically uh, sinful, separated from our Creator because of our sin, and in need of redemption. Mm-hmm. Ephesians two. So. I particularly have a passion that parents learn how to do this in the home. So the examples I'm going to give are going to be for parents trying to care for their kids. How do we communicate the good news and the bad news so that our kids see clearly the difference? And I Can, can I tell a story about that real yeah, quick? Yeah. I, it fits with your notes here. So it just happened. So it's kind of top of mind for me. Uh, my oldest, Tucker, he's eight, obsessed with basketball. And he says to me the other night before bed, he's always taking his shots, you know, on the one of those, whatever, over the door backboard <laughs> things. Um, he said, Dad, I cannot wait till I get to heaven because I won't miss shots anymore. <laughs> and uh, so I... I yeah, that's of, what it means to be saved, you're thinking. <laughs> yes, yes. So I paused him and I said, hey, do you know, you could still miss shots when you, you get into heaven. He was like, what? No, I'll be perfect. And I said, no, Jesus didn't die. <laughs> To so make that, you a good basketball yeah, player. Yeah, so that you won't miss shots. That's not what he is saving us to. And so he kind of, you know, I mean, he's eight uh-uh. and I'm getting in this deep conversation. <laughs> but I said, Tucker, Jesus died to rescue you from your sin, to make sure that you could be uh, reunited with your father in heaven. Now, these mistakes that we make in life um, or shortcomings in terms of yeah, Or your desire for success. Yeah, those are different than our sins. And Jesus died for our sins. The mistakes, that's great. We still, we don't want to make mistakes. I, I get that. But they're not the same as sin and you're not condemned for your mistakes. So even uh, tried to say to him like, mom and dad are not upset or we're not going to punish you because you make a mistake, right? You spell a word wrong on a spelling test or whatever, those kinds of things. Very different than sinful behavior. Um, and I want you to know that you are rescued from your sin and not from your mistakes. It's yeah, good. It's a, it's, it's such good news because our kids in this culture feel an immense amount of pressure to be successful. And then they conflate the why Jesus died with the suburban dream. So here, I'll just go through my little notes here. First, I think we need to explain Jesus didn't die to save us from our mistakes. He died to save us from our sin. If I spill milk, and this is how I I explained it at the dinner table with my little ones. If I spill milk at the table, that's not a sin. It's a mistake. If I throw my glass of milk at my sibling, that's a sin. Mm -hmm. Jesus died for that. And so we need to distinguish between um, our immaturities and our ability to grow up and go on to maturity um, and... and, uh, and become fully formed, and then our sinfulness, those elements of our person that are contrary to God. So my inability to do math, (laughs) I'm not very good at math. Christ didn't, he didn't die to make me um, understand calculus. Um, Is this, this, okay. And so that carries into the next one. Parents need to distinguish between success in the world and fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, those are the fruit of the Spirit. Um, So being really good at basketball um, is not is not why Christ died. He he wants to make me gentle and kind and loving and patient and and self and disciplined. 
um, which can have an impact on who I am as a basketball player. Um, but there's a difference. And the American dream gets enfolded with the gospel if we're not really careful here. So, um, yeah, work and calling. Everybody has to grow up and get a job. Um, but we also have a calling on our lives. I, I tell my kids, you, you know, you have a calling on your life. There's a way that you're to serve God and his purposes in the world. It may have something to do with how you pay your bills. It may not. And, and we need to figure that out. You need to find your place in the church and serve. So I don't know. I feel like I, I fizzled out there, but. No, I, th- I think that's great. I mean, full circle there. Um, idea of good news versus bad news, right? And, and um, yeah, just seeing that these pieces actually invite us into this really full life, that, that is great news. Um, All right, so here, I'll, I'll do, uh, I can go again. <laughs> Telling our kids apart from him, we can do nothing, Jane, uh, John fifteen five is a very important thing. That has to do with everything good in the world is from God. If I want to be a part of what God is doing in the world, I need his spirit in my life. So, Distinguish it between having the Spirit and not having the Spirit, walking with the Spirit and resisting the Spirit. These are parts of the good news, bad news dichotomy. So calling our kids to submit to the Spirit, uh, be filled with the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, rather than simply in try harder, yeah. run faster. You've got to be successful. It's, there's a distinction to be had there. Oh, and I, it, it's a constant conversation we're having in our house with teenagers about making the most of every opportunity that you have, because right. here in this community, there's a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. and make the most of them and use those opportunities to learn about yourself and how God has wired you and what is your purpose and, you know, stumble your way through it because you're not going to figure it out the first try while weighing and remembering that there's a lot of things that will satisfy you or give you a temporary fix of feeling satisfied. But at the end of the day, you, nothing will fulfill you and give you purpose, mm-hmm. like a relationship with Christ. So like balancing all of that, um, is, I feel like our role as parents or teaching that I should say, and, and the, our teenagers and our kids having to balance it. But at the end of the day, and I cannot tell you how like real time I'm learning this lesson right now, there is nothing I can do to convince my kids to love and follow Jesus. I mean, I can share and give examples. I can live a life that's maybe worth emulating. I can pray, but I cannot make them. You're not the Holy Spirit. I'm not. And I mean, praise God. That's very freeing, but it is really humbling. We have two years left. I mean, that feels like an eternity on some levels, but with our oldest. What are we going to do? Right. <laughs> She's going to go out into the world ready or not. So, yeah. yeah. I, I tell people, I'm like, I, I never realized how not in control I was until I had kids. Oh, for sure. Just wait till you have teenagers. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> it's, you know, it, uh, most recently it's like they're in the womb and you're like, that doesn't matter what I can do. I, like, yeah. right, I, can't, I can't manufacture anything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, as teens, when they have so making humbling. decisions that have real consequences on their life mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trusting them with Jesus. All right. Let's go to the next one. The Psalms often ask God for vengeance over enemies. Jesus tells us to pray for our enemies. There seems to be tension between the two. What should our disposition be towards our enemies? And who is our enemy? Hmm. 
Me, 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 me here. Yeah, go. Cool. <laughs> uh, love the Psalms. Spend probably the most most of my time uh, in the Psalms uh, over any other book. And actually dug into some seminary work from a couple of years ago on what's called the imprecatory Psalms. Uh, and they do, uh, on f- just on the surface level, they do um, seem to cause a little bit of confusion when you try to balance it out with the New Testament and that kind of thing. Uh, so the imprecatory Psalms, there's about 18 of them-ish, somewhere around there. And um, the, the important thing to remember when you're reading through these Psalms is the contextual backdrop, right? Like God is in a covenant relationship with Israel that is conditional. There are curses, there are blessings. And so uh, the thing to remember when you read some of this pretty harsh language, because it gets pretty, pretty graphic, right? Mm-hmm. Is that this isn't about a personal vendetta. This isn't about um, the psalmist's uh, desire to get revenge for himself. This is always 100% of the time, this is always about God's justice and his judgment. Um, and so, uh, in other words, some of these nations that are attacking uh, God's people are attacking God's plan. Some of these, uh, and, and it's not only ex, uh, external nations, some of these attacks are from within, right? But it's always an attack on uh, God's plan. It's, it's about, and so um, the emotions are, uh, the, the, you know, there is a wide emotional range in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And so you do get some raw, human emotion. God is also a God of emotions. God exhibits emotions throughout all of the Bible. Um, and so, yeah, it, it does get graphic and raw, but it is, if you really examine these imprecatory Psalms, it is always about God's righteousness, his holiness, his judgment. Um, his glory. His glory. His work of redemption. Absolutely. His purposes. Yes. So Psalm 35 is an imprecatory psalm. Contend, Lord, with those who contend with me, fight against those who fight against me. Yeah. So he's calling God to protect him, provide for him. And, um, and in the context, this David writes Psalm 35. I mean, he's king of Israel, back to Matt's point. I mean, Israel was a theocracy at the time, and so God had particular and unique plans. And so the preservation of Israel... Uh, bore directly upon the coming of the Messiah. And so David can rightly say, protect me as king, protect this nation, which is synonymous with protect your purposes. Today, the question asker says, who is our enemy? And I I would generically, that you could take a lot of time to define that, but I would just say anyone who attacks our well-being, and that could be a spouse, and that happens when spouses turn against spouses. Uh, and and treat one another poorly and even attack each other uh, in divorce. And uh, it could be siblings. That that happens. It could be our physical well-being. It could be our emotional well-being, our mental well-being. And so so what do we do with the imprecatory Psalms? How do we care, treat our enemies? And I just betrayed my, my, how do we care for our enemies best? (laughs) And we go back to, uh, to Jesus's teachings on this, we should be as wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. It's, it's Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Now, with regard to innocence, how, do, how are we innocent as followers of Christ? Well, we're long-suffering, we're patient, we're kind, we turn the other cheek, we pray for those who hurt us, 
who are our enemies? How are we as wise as serpents? Well, we recognize that we're to actively also resist evil, that it's not in the best interest of the mean person to let them continue to be mean. And so uh, we shouldn't be passive towards active meanness. We shouldn't be vengeful. We yeah. should be patient and kind. Um, but we should understand that, that there's discipline needed in relationships, which in some cases means giving distance to a relationship. You had a question, Matt, or a comment? Um, yeah, well, you, you sort of touched on it a, a little bit, um, or you started to, but, you know, because we often talk about, man, the Psalms, if you want to learn how to pray, go to the Psalms. But then if once you come across some imprecatory Psalms, it's like, wait a minute, should I pray this? How do this I way? pray this? <laughs> like, um, yeah. And so, um, uh, yes, yes and no. Um, and, it, and, and it's about the posture of your heart, right? Like, um, you, you may pray, and, and you know, I, you probably aren't, and probably shouldn't pray for someone's children, something bad happens to someone's children. Mm-hmm. But like, you may pray for somebody to reach the end of themselves because a lot of times that's what God mm-hmm. does and, and allows to have happen before he meets you. Uh, I have prayed that prayer for other people. Um, I've prayed that prayer for myself at times. Like, man, I, just, do I just need to get to the end of myself or I pray for somebody else? Like, will, will you bring this person to the end of themselves? through whatever means possible so that they would see you clearly um, and that they would receive you. And um, that, uh, th- that may not sound like a very, you know, loving and fluffy and, you know, rose petaled uh, prayer. Um, but that, that could be an example of something that is kind of like an imprecatory song. Mm-hmm. But if you are praying that prayer because you're ticked off at that person, because they've wronged you and you're like, God, will you, would you just bring them to the end of theirs? They, they need to know that this won't happen again. Like, then obviously that's something you should not do. That's not a good heart posture for prayer. Because uh, that's about you. That's not about God and this person's coming to Jesus. That's about you and, and revenge. I would say the beauty of that is, right, that God can handle it, number one. And I can, I guess this does assume better heart posture. But if I put that up there, it's not as if I'm commanding God to do it, right? I'm expressing kind of this raw emotion yeah. and I can trust whatever God does is just. So yeah. if he's like, hey, no man, I'm not gonna do that to that person. Um, hopefully down the road, I'm like, all right, that was a good thing. Uh, I, was, oh, totally. I was angry about it, but I yeah. trust that you know, God's doing yeah, it, you can, handling it the right way. Yeah, I mean, it's not that you can't bring emotion to God. It's the question is, is this an ideal, is this a prayer model? <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Most yeah. often when I read the imprecatory Psalms, I I take them to mean, um, to, to remind me I have an enemy in Satan and his demonic forces. God, he's working uh, contrary to God's purposes in my life. And, and I should feel the raw emotion of, of someone attacked because we know, according to the New Testament, that, we ha- that the enemy roars like a lion looking to devour somebody. I mean, that's, that's warfare language. It's, it's a harsh realism about... Um, a spiritual force is coming against us. And so I take those imprecatory Psalms, um, not on behalf of America. Again, we don't live in a theocracy any longer. Israel was a unique governance governed by God, but um, we, we, we still have an enemy that is looking to undermine us. Yeah. Uh, lastly, uh, Jesus quoted an imprecatory. He's quoted Psalm 69, 
when uh, he overturned the the tables in the temple. Uh, he said something about you know father's his father zeal for his father's house. That was straight out of Psalm sixty nine, which is an imprecatory psalm. So mm-hmm. and and uh, Paul writes about it. The the verse escapes me, but Paul writes about it as well. Um, he quotes a couple of imprecatory psalms in his epistles. So mm-hmm. it, it, it isn't something that is only found in the Old Testament. Yeah. We do see it running through yeah. the New Testament as well. Yeah, yeah it's good. Um, okay, next one. Uh, when we talk about God's judgment and God's justice, how are they similar or different from human ideas of judgment and justice? <laughs> so different. I'll answer it. Just kidding. Good. Yeah. <laughs> in your work with uh, women who've been trafficked, do you wrestle with this judgment justice yeah sure or just and even in everyday life i mean just i think you said it best grant a minute ago praying for certain things and thinking about those who are enemies although i was like i don't think i have any enemies um uh knowing that god can handle our prayers and and still be just even if we're Mm. praying for things that are ridiculous or if we're in a yeah. raw emotional yeah, state. Exactly. Exactly. Like God can handle that and he can still remain just. Um, the, I, okay. I have one thought. I'll just share this one thought. I, I'm really, I, I studied it a while ago. It's coming back to me, but the, I think it's the Hebrew word for justice or equity in that. And Micah, um, Micah six, is mm-hmm. it? It's, I'm going off my memory here. Uh, the word mishpat, right? We know that word in the Hebrew language, that is used for justice or equity or, or whatnot. And I, I remember learning that it's not just paying somebody what they're due, mm. like a justice sentence, a criminal, but it's also repaying those who suffered injustice what they're owed. And I think we think a lot about that in the context of working with trafficking victims that, because I think maybe people don't, people don't know this, but most trafficking victims don't go after their traffickers. They don't want to sit through a trial and go through all the trauma of having to testify and relive their trauma. So you don't see a lot of that part of justice happen in the trafficking world where traffickers are brought to justice. But the part, the biblical justice that's offered to survivors is repaying them what's owed. They have so much has been lost. Hmm. And so as a community and as a church and as an organization, we can participate in helping restore what was lost. So their, their dignity and their tangible resources and their families and those types of things. So that's um, how I see our opportunities to model God's heart and justice in a modern day setting. But that's the only thing I got because everything else. That's good. Grant, you had some notes here. Yeah, so when I was studying up for this week, I was trying to just think uh, philosophically, I guess, what, what, how would we define judgment? Um, right? Because to a degree, when we talk about God's judgment, I can only frame it through my lens of justice, how I experience it or how I think about it. Um, and there's three categories we kind of came up with. Someone just touched on one of them. Um, but one is this revenge, which has some negative connotations, but it, at its core, revenge is this backward-looking judgment. Um, it's the desire to make the offender experience um, an amount of pain that corresponds to whatever pain of the offense they caused, right? So that this is kind of like uh, 
making the balance sheet equal, but it's, it's backward looking. Um, then there's a retributive type of justice, and this is forward looking, uh, and it's intended to prevent a wrong from happening in the future, uh, either by the offender or by bystanders, right? So if Matt does something horrible and I see the punishment that he receives, it warns me like, ooh, don't do what Matt does, right? I hear this, it's like the second and third sibling, they see their older brother and sister do stupid stuff. And they're like, I just decided not to be them. Um, that is retributive justice. Um, and its aim is to restrain evil. So judgment is not only to punish, but also to God's active work of restraining evil in the world so it doesn't continue on. Mm. Um, and then the last piece, kind of that goal of it, is the, the restorative justice. And this is, um, at least between us and God relationally, it's God's response um, towards the relational outcome of sin. So justice is always intended at reuniting that relationship that's been severed. Um, yeah. It's not simply a, you know, um, punish them for punishment's sake. Uh, it's to bring them back into relationship um, with the Lord. That makes, makes me think of, um, when you were talking about how it restrains evil, it makes me think of the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> you know, like at the end of the movie, when the it's warden... It's been a while since you brought up Shawshank, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Have I brought it up before? Yes. No. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. All right. You're going to start quoting it. No. I'm sorry. No, get continue. busy living. Continue. Man, when the, when the warden... Oh, yeah, yeah. I Go do get say that busy a lot. dying. No, when the warden is exposed at the end, I mean, not only does the man who is wrongly imprisoned f- freed, but, but all the evil that was going on in the prison is exposed. Like, that's just, you see that, and you're just like, so oh, yeah. yeah. Like, you want it. You know, that warden is so evil, and, like, you want that justice to be done, and then you see it. Anyway, mm. Shawshank Redemption. Okay. <laughs> There's the plaque on his wall that says, his judgment cometh and right soon. Yes, and that's the other thing is he's such a Bible beater, and, right. you know, like... Ugh. Ugh. Oh, I know it's just gross, Pain. and so the, the 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 justice and retribution is even sweeter when you see it played yeah. out. Anyway, oh, um, I forgot about that plaque on the wall. That's a good, <laughs> good reference, good pull. Okay, last one. I noticed the lack of explanation in Isaiah 20 when Isaiah was commanded to be naked for three years. Can you make sense of that? Yeah, section? why'd you skip that, Grant? I didn't mention it either. Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty easy passage in general, so I figured, <laughs> no. Um, yeah, actually, it, at first you're kind of like, ooh, that's, I, don't want it. I don't want that. So, I, my initial thought was like, I'm glad I'm not a prophet. Right? So it's Isaiah 20, and it's the first uh, three verses, four verses. Isaiah actually walked around naked for three years as um, a sign of judgment. Yeah, so, and that's, that's kind of why... You, I mean, it stands out to us because it's shocking, but it's a fairly simple explanation in, in terms of it was this uh, physical performative representation of the shame. So Isaiah's uh, living in shame and it's representing the shame um, that will come on the people. To so, be naked was to be, sh- it's a shameful reality. Right, right. Publicly naked. We all know that kind of intuitively. And so he's living this way to say, your shame is coming. Yeah. So it How's that for a jobby job? I mean, that's a hard preaching assignment. Yeah, I don't want that one. (laughs) All right. All right, well, that's all the questions we have for you today. If you have any further questions, comments, or concerns, don't hesitate. Text the Next Level Podcast, 630-474-6164. 
Our podcast is dedicated to answering listener questions on two levels, answering specific questions about last Sunday's sermon, and also just general questions regarding broader topics within the Christian faith. We love God and believe that scripture is a primary means for our getting to know him. And our hope is that this podcast extends the learning opportunity for all who want to know God better, strengthening not only your faith, but my faith and our faith together. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in on the next level. Prophecy.